welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hi Gateway Whanau, welcome along to Church Online. Again, we're so glad that you're gathering with us. Over the last few weeks I've been doing a series that I've called If I Were God. And so far we've considered the topics If I Were God, I Would Stop Suffering and Pain, particularly COVID-19. If I Were God, I Would Provide More Evidence for My Existence. I Would Make Things Much Clearer Than They Appear To Be. And then last week we talked about the fact that if I were God, I would answer more prayers. The last subject I want to consider in this series is if I were God, I would do away with the distasteful, repugnant idea of eternal punishment. I'd do away with hell. I think the idea of eternal punishment is deeply problematic for Christian faith. Even people who are attracted to the character of Jesus find his teachings around the subject of eternal punishment quite unacceptable. The very vocal and famous atheist Bertrand Russell once said, There is a very serious defect in my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is profoundly moral can believe in everlasting punishment. In today's world, the idea of hell is routinely dismissed as quite embarrassing, an artifact of another era, lost in the past along with powdered wigs and witch trials. People used to believe it, of course, but nowadays they no longer believe it. Some of you may have heard of a particular preacher, a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards, and his very, very famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards was actually one of America's greatest theologians. He was a key figure, one greatly used by God in what we now look back on as a season of incredible revival and call the Great Awakening. Uh, In July of, of 1741, he preached a sermon to his church in Northampton, Massachusetts, with incredibly dramatic effects. In the sermon, he described the horrors of hell in what has been described as the most vivid glimpse into hell as the imagination of man has been able to conceive. And one of the things he said as he was preaching was, that world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open and you have nothing to stand upon, nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. It's only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. The sermon, which, by the way, wasn't really representative of Edward's preaching, became his best-known sermon because of the incredible impact that it exerted on those who originally heard it. The congregation were visibly affected and people cried out, sensing that they were actually slipping into hell to their own doom. And at one point, Edwards had to pause in his sermon because he couldn't be heard above the screams and shrieks of the people. At that particular time and in that culture, hell was for the most part a fact of life, a significant item in the store of people's beliefs. It was a conviction that gave shape to their lives. By contrast, the fear of hell is totally foreign to most postmodern people, including, I suspect, most Christians in the postmodern era. 
those who were to read Edwards' sermon today would probably more likely be amused than terrified. Today, if hell is talked about at all, it's usually trivialised, often through comedy. Jokes about people arriving in hell are numerous. The problem with that is that ridicule and reverence don't coexist, and as somebody once said, perfect laughter casts out fear. The serious notion of everlasting punishment for people in hell is not just objectionable to our godless culture, it's something that many so-called Christian theologians also reject. Richard Balcom uh, said, until the 19th century, almost all Christian theologians taught the reality of eternal torment. Since the 1880s, this situation has entirely changed and no traditional Christian doctrine has been so widely abandoned as that of eternal punishment. Large sections of the liberal Protestant church disregard the doctrine as morally indefensible and more and more so-called evangelicals are joining with them and coming out against the idea of hell. One popular author makes a rather extreme claim that the massive departure of belief in Christianity in the West can be traced to the doctrine of hell. Now, I'm not so sure that that can be substantiated completely, but I suspect there are many people who have rejected Christianity because they feel or believe that the idea of hell is morally repugnant. One does wonder why, if people in general, and even people who profess to be Christ followers, reject the idea of eternal punishment, why, why God doesn't actually get with the program. If I were God, I'd drop the idea of hell and eternal punishment pronto. Surely he could see that it doesn't sit well with, and perhaps even as completely incompatible with, his love, his goodness, his justice, and his power. All of these attributes could be called into question by this detestable notion of hell. However, as attractive as it might sound to do away with hell and eternal punishment, and as common as that position is becoming, even in, in evangelical circles, it does create some significant problems for us as Christ followers. Primary among them is the fact that most of what the Bible says about hell actually comes from the lips of Jesus himself. He is the prime, if not the sole, source of our knowledge on hell. Without his teaching, it would be almost impossible to furnish a description of hell, uh, much less formulate a doctrine of hell. Hell is used 23 times in the New Testament, and on 16 of those occasions, at 70%, it comes from Jesus. If you were to add other phrases that speak about eternal punishment, like outer darkness, gnashing of teeth, eternal damnation, everlasting punishment, and everlasting fire, all of those cumulatively adding up to 14 more occurrences and indications of hell, all come from the mouth of Jesus. Jesus seemed deeply concerned that we understand what is at stake in this issue. In the Sermon on the Mount, generally lauded for its beauty and grandeur and often called the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus said this, So if your eye, even, it is, even if it is your best eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. Better for a part of you to be destroyed than for all of you to be cast into hell. And if your hand, even your right hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Better that than find yourself in hell. 
Now, paraphrased, Jesus seemed to be saying, take whatever action you must take, including radical, dramatic, and even extreme action to avoid this place called hell. If we are going to dismiss hell as an outdated, abhorrent notion, then we have to do it by disregarding the words of Jesus. Some theologians do exactly that. One one commented, I believe that Jesus Christ taught eternal punishment. I do not accept it on his authority. And another said, if the doctrine of eternal punishment was clearly and unmistakably taught in every leaf of the Bible and on every leaf of all the Bibles in the world, I could not believe a word of it. Now, the major problem with such a position is if we can't trust Jesus' words on hell, why should we trust anything else that he says? Jesus claimed to be speaking from an eyewitness perspective on these spiritual realities. In John chapter 3, verse 12, in the message translation, it says, Listen carefully. I'm speaking sober truth to you. I speak only of what I know by experience. I give witness only to what I have seen with my own eyes. There is nothing secondhand here, no hearsay. And so to dismiss Jesus' words on hell calls into question everything he, he says about other subjects as well. What this makes us do is we become arbitrators over the word of God instead of the word of God becoming arbitrators over us. A second significant problem with dismissing hell is that if it's not perceived as a serious or a real threat, then it's hard to know how much or how salvation can have much meaning either. Christianity is primarily a scheme of salvation from sin and all its implications and consequences, including eternal ones. If there's no eternal judgment and no punishment of sin, then it isn't surprising that salvation is less conceived as a matter of eternal life and more as a matter of personal fulfillment in this life. Salvation in the modern church, and it's reflected by many of the sermons we hear, sounds increasingly like a means of dealing with our psychological difficulties and problems, gaining a personal and positive self-image, and developing a better, more positive outlook on life. You know, I think one of the reasons that we find hell so distasteful is that our understanding of this admittedly difficult doctrine is actually a caricature of what the Bible actually teaches and of what uh, Christian theology has historically proclaimed. Now you might say to me, Don, well, what's a caricature? I'm I'm sure you've all seen them. It's the cartoon-like drawing of a real person, a real place, or a real thing. I'm sure you've seen them, whether it be of perhaps Jacinda Ardern or Donald Trump or Barack Obama. The caricature exaggerates some features and oversimplifies others, so that the end result actually is often quite humorous. In one sense, it does bear a resemblance to Jacinda or Donald or Barack, but there are salient features that are blown way out of proportion. Usually Jacinda's teeth, Donald's swept back hair, and Barack's ears. A caricature like this would never pass uh, for a driver's license or passport photo because it really does amount to a hideous distortion of the real thing. And I think much of what people believe about hell is in fact a caricature of the real thing. 
I suspect actually Christendom has been significantly influenced by Dante's famous work called The Divine Comedy, where he pictures hell as an inferno, nine concentric circles of punishment increasing in intensity until you get into the very middle where we find Satan incarcerated. Dante's Inferno was located deep in the cavernous bowels of the earth and was basically a chamber of blazing flames where God unleashes hell's destruction on sinners who are tortured for their rejection of God during their lifetime and their now repentant cries go unanswered and heaven stonily responds, it's too late, you had your chance, you blew it. That description of hell is a wild caricature that is barely recognisable when you compare it with the scriptures. And what I'd like to do is highlight some of those obvious differences between the caricature and the real thing. The first difference is it's not God who unleashes hell's destructiveness, it's us. We do it. We are the ones who have unleashed the destructive power of hell in the world. The blazing fire that is a key part of the caricature is actually used in the Bible as a metaphor for the destructive nature of sin. In the book of Isaiah chapter 9 it says, the wicked, Their wicked lives raged out like uh, an out-of-control fire, the kind that burns everything in its path, trees and bushes, weeds and grasses, filling the skies with smoke. God of the angel armies answered fire with fire, set the whole country on fire, turned the people into consuming fires, consuming one another in their lusts. You know, it's interesting, but generally in Scripture, God's judgment is to give the people more of what they already are pushing for. They want fire, so he gives them fire. In this passage it says he answers fire with fire. In the book of Hosea chapter 7, it says, They're a bunch of overheated adulterers like an oven that holds its heat. They are like wood stoves red hot with lust. Through the night their passion is banked, in the morning it blazes up, flames hungrily licking. Murderous and volcanic, they incinerate their rulers. Our red-hot sin leaves a trail of destruction in its wake, and hell gains entrance into God's good world through us. We're the agents of destruction, the architects of demolition. You know, people being in hell was never God's idea. It was never designed for man. You can see that in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, where it says it was actually prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, the good news is that even though the power of hell has its roots and source in our own overheated hearts, God wants to heal us. He wants to deliver us. He wants to redeem us. And he's come in the person of his own son to deal with sin and hell and to deal with the wildfire that has raged and marred the world and its peoples. A second aspect regarding the caricature of hell that needs correction is its supposed location. It's, it's down there, we say. We speak of going down into hell. Somehow, again, probably influenced through Dante's work and by some Old Testament passages, we assume that hell is located underground, deep beneath the geological layers of dirt and, and rock, deep underground, some kind of torture chamber, somewhat like perhaps um, the, the chambers that are found under ancient castles. Now, some of you perhaps might be tempted to say, well, Don, if hell isn't down there, why does the Old Testament depict it that way? In the, 
<coughs> excuse me, in the Old Testament, a word that is the rough equivalent of hell is the word Sheol. But the word Sheol simply means the grave. It was where everyone went at death, righteous and unrighteous. For example, in Genesis chapter 37, verse 35, Jacob is mourning for the loss of, um, or at least the supposed loss of his son Joseph. And it says, and all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I will go, go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And his father wept for him. Now, the emphasis clearly here isn't on some place of punishment. It's simply the place of death. Now, things change when we get to the New Testament. With Jesus, we have a significant difference. He doesn't use the word Sheol, the place of the grave. He describes hell differently. He uses a word Gehenna. Now, the word Gi comes from the Hebrew word valley. The word Hena is a transliteration of the word Hinnom. And Gehenna is literally the valley of Hinnom. So Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, wasn't some deep cavernous hole beneath the earth. It was an actual physical location just outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. The Valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna, had a very dark history associated with it, and you can trace it through the scriptures. Firstly, it was a place of idolatry. One writer described it as a cheap hotel outside the city where Israel cheated on God with her other lovers. It was, a, it was a place where in pursuit of these other lovers, these other gods, Israel became involved in the most depraved act of worship, child sacrifice. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, it says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. But he, he was an evil king, unlike his ancestor, King David. For he followed the example of the kings over in Israel and worshipped the idols of Baal. He even went out into the valley of Hinnom, and it was not just to burn incense to the idols, for he even sacrificed his own children in the fire. And the same is said in 2 Chronicles chapter 33 and verse 6 of Manasseh, where it says, Manasseh sacrificed his own children as burnt offerings in the valley of Hinnom. By Jesus' time, the valley of Hinnom had become the equivalent of the city dump. It was where the dead bodies of executed criminals were thrown out into this place called Gehenna. And fire was needed to consume the trash, the rubbish, the dead bodies. So that it was a place of constant smoldering and burning. Now the point I'm eager to make here is that for Jesus, hell is not some cavernous hole under the ground, but a place outside of the city, outside of Jerusalem. Now, when you consider Jerusalem, of course, we know that Jerusalem means the city of peace or the shalom of God. When we use the word peace, we tend to think in a Western context of a cessation of hostilities. But shalom is a word that means much more than that. It really has to do with the idea of human flourishing at every level. And this earthly city, this city of Shalom was intended to provide a picture, to be a metaphor of another city, of a heavenly city, the community of God, where humanity and creation are in right relationship and in intimate communion with both God and one another. When we come to the very end of the Bible story, the great climactic finale of the Bible story in Revelation chapter 21, we see God bringing this real city 
the new Jerusalem down to earth, the new shalom of God. And John describes it like this in Revelation 21. I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And in verse 22 through 27 of that chapter, it says, No temple could be seen in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are worshipped in it everywhere. And the city has no need of sun or moon to light it, for the glory of God and of the Lamb illuminate it. Its light will light the nations of the earth, and the rulers of the world will come and bring their glory to it. Its gates never close. They stay open all day long, and there is no night. And the glory and honor of all the nations shall be brought into it. Nothing evil will be permitted in it. No one immoral or dishonest, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The open gates of this heavenly city speak of the welcoming posture of God toward the nations, toward the world. In Isaiah, Isaiah also speaks prophetically of this city. And in chapter 60, verse 11, he says, Your Jerusalem gates will always be open, open house, day and night. You know, this is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, that the nations of the earth would be blessed as they come streaming into the city, God's community, to worship God in glory and his redemption. While the gates of the city are open in welcome, sin and its allies are not allowed to enter. And in verse 27, it says, Nothing evil will be permitted in it, no one immoral or dishonest, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, sin by nature is against shalom. And so the evil is contained outside the city because it stands in opposition to God, to God's good and redemptive purposes that are being fulfilled inside the city. This moves the focus of the caricature of God torturing the bad in hell to actually God protecting the good in the city. Now, God clearly wants all people inside the city, inside that community. Zechariah the prophet, like Isaiah, also spoke of this new community using the picture of the city of Jerusalem. And he says this in chapter 2. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about and will be the glory in the midst of her. Now Isaiah spoke of the city's gates being open. Zechariah says that, that there weren't any walls. This isn't a contradiction. It's saying the same thing using different images. All are welcome. All can come. However, Zechariah does say that God's holy presence in the new community will act as a barrier to that which is unholy, preventing the destructive power of sin from entering his kingdom. So it seems then that hell is primarily a place of containment. You know, evil is a little bit like a crack in your car windshield. It may start at one point, but it spreads, working its way through the entire piece of glass until the hole is completely shattered. And what sin does is it cracks through the human community, seeking to fracture and shatter it. And God, as changing the metaphor, is the great physician who gives the recalcitrant the best medicine for their situation. But if they don't want to be treated, then he will at least restrain the extent to which that crack can extend or that cancer can grow. And so what God does is he contains it. One author described hell as a boundary of mercy 
both for God's redeemed community and for those who refuse to repent. So God protects his holy city. Hell is his way of saying you can have your sin if you want, but you cannot have it in here. Now a third aspect of the caricature that needs adjusting is that hell is primarily a place of torture. I think that idea, apart from Dante, also is perhaps derived from a story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. The story starts in verse 19. Let me read it to you. There was a certain rich man, Jesus said, who was splendidly clothed and lived each day in mirth and luxury. One day, Lazarus, a diseased beggar, was laid at his door. As he lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the beggar died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham in the place of the righteous dead. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went into hell. There, in torment, he saw Lazarus in the far distance with Abraham. Father Abraham, he shouted, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here, if only to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in these flames." But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us, and anyone wanting to come to you from here is stopped at its edge, and no one can come there, no one from over there can cross to us. Then the rich man said, O father Abraham, then please send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers to warn them about this place of torment, lest they come here when they die. But Abraham said, The scriptures have warned them again and again. Your brothers can read them any time they want to. The rich man replied, No, father Abraham, they won't bother to read them, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will turn from their sins. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even though someone rises from the dead. You know, it's interesting, but we normally refer to that passage as a parable, though it is not named by either the gospel writer or from Jesus' lips. Now, it might well be a parable. However, it's interesting that the poor man in this story is actually given a name. And it's really unusual in any of the parables for any of the figures or characters to be given a name. We don't know the name of the Good Samaritan. In the parable of the prodigal son, we don't know the name of the father, the prodigal son, or his older brother. And one wonders if this is actually intended by Jesus to be um, regarded as an actual story, perhaps one of his eyewitness stories. Now, the story does set the record straight on a number of misconceptions that we have regarding hell, with regard the caricature to, with which we're all familiar. The first is that people in hell are repentant and desperately want out. Now, the rich man in hell is not in deep contrition. He's not saying, I'm so sorry for my sin. I'm so sorry for the way I live. Please forgive me. Please let me out. Please give me another chance. He doesn't ask to go from where he is to where Lazarus is. Rather, he's requiring Lazarus to come from where he is to where the rich man is and to serve him. The old order is still firmly fixed in his unrepentant thinking. Secondly, the story refutes the idea that heaven's posture toward people in hell is one of refusal and rejection. Like, you had your chance, you blew it, you don't get another one. 
Abraham speaks to the rich man and actually calls him son, or as some translations have, child. This is an expression of fatherhood, of filial devotion and care. This is not stone-hearted heaven shut up against a penitent sinner trying to gain entrance. This is actually New Jerusalem with its gates wide open, speaking to one who is stuck in an old order of things and wants that old order reinstated. The chasm that separates them is the boundary of mercy that I referred to before that prevents hell from invading the new creation and from the new creation being dragged into hell. Notice also in this story that it is not God torturing the rich man. The Bible says that the rich man is in torment. Now, the word torment comes from a Greek word, basenos, which actually refers to a touchstone. And a touchstone was used in that ancient time to test gold or silver to see whether it was real or fake. And in this case, under the rubbing of the touchstone, the veneer of this rich man comes off and he is seen for what he really is. And that reality causes him great anguish. That word anguish is a word that indicates remorse and grief, neither of which are akin to repentance. The torment mentioned in this passage is actually internal, while torture, of course, is always something imposed externally. I can be tormented by a headache, or I can be tortured by somebody who continually beats my head with a piece of timber. This isn't a picture of God hitting this man on his head, but rather one who is tormented by inner emotional pain. In spite of that, he remains completely unrepentant. In actual fact, he seeks to justify himself and implies that perhaps even God is at fault for not giving him enough information. Please go to my brothers and give them the information that you denied me. Heaven's response, of course, is that they have Moses and the prophets. They have all the information they need, just as you did. You know, the problem is not a shortage of details or data. Following that, the rich man asks for a display of power. Get someone to go to them from the dead. It's all so familiar. It's all so classic. Work a miracle. Show us an act of power, then we'll believe. But as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the problem is not and has never been a lack of information, a lack of evidence. The problem lies elsewhere. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The last aspect of the caricature I want to briefly address is that hell is not some chamber locked from the outside, locked by God. Rather, it seems to be a closet that we have latched from the inside. Hell is not about God's refusal to redeem, but rather our refusal to be redeemed. Hell has actually been described as the land of the free. It's the ultimate com compliment, it's the ultimate respect that God gives and pays to human free will. He doesn't send people to hell, they go there because they have chosen to go there. Now you might say to me, Don, I can't possibly believe that anybody would choose to go to hell. Well, I agree with you if it was a stark one-off choice. I don't think anyone would want to go to hell. But I actually think hell is the end result of a lifetime of choices. St. Augustine once spoke about our call to live 
curved outwards with our gaze fixed upon God and on our neighbours in selfless love. What sin does, in essence, is to pull our gaze from God and from others and turn it in upon ourselves. Augustine described it as being curved inwards. The result of being curved inwards is that we become shrunken, restricted and small. And I suspect that hell is actually the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life, curved inwards and going on and on forever. You know, a massive brick wall is an aggregation of small bricks. And I suspect that hell is an aggregation of small choices that we've made to allow ourselves to be curved inward. Hell is where we end up when we allow ourselves to be curved inward and self-absorbed. C.S. Lewis once said, perhaps there is something growing in each of us that has hellish potential unless it's nipped in the bud. I find that a deeply sobering thought. When we're able to see through the caricature and see what the Bible actually says about hell, I think we can see that it is in no way incompatible with his love, his goodness, his justice, or his power. Perhaps, in fact, it's an expression of those attributes. I want to suggest to you that God has done everything he can through his love, through his goodness, by his power, and in accordance with his justice to prevent you or anyone else ever going to hell. If you go there, it will literally be over his dead body. He has taken the initiative. He's paid the price so that we can enjoy life inside the city, inside the community. The book of Hebrews tells us in chapter uh, 13, verse 12, that Jesus suffered outside the city gates so that we could have those gates opened to us. The good news is that an invitation has been extended to you. You can come, no matter what your background, no matter how blotched and marred uh, your past is, you can come on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. Shedding his blood on the cross outside the city gates, he has opened the gates for you. An invitation has been extended to you, but he will not coerce you. He will not bully you. Ultimately, he will respect your free choice. As we finish today, can I implore you that Jesus' words about avoiding hell need to be taken seriously. Hell is not some outdated doctrine that needs to be put away. It is an eternal reality that Jesus spoke to so powerfully, so profoundly, because he wanted to ensure that none of us ended up there. None of us need to. If we simply respond to that invitation, heaven, the inside of the city, the community of God and intimacy with God can be ours, can be yours. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.